You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 164, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. Today's guests are returning guests, Charles Kroll and Elizabeth Tambly. They are forensic auditors, basically people who look at the financial information for organizations and try and figure out what's going on. Are they in trouble? Are they not in trouble? Are they hiding money? Uh, Charles cut his teeth in Minneapolis, where he helped expose some problems with one of the insurance companies and healthcare systems. And so he got involved with the analysis of these mega boards, which is a sort of esoteric and complicated subject. So it's one that I think you'll find very interesting if you're a physician or a medical student, especially someone who's in the match process or a resident. These are things that are really important to you because they involve your certification, the ability for you to get certified in your profession, stay certified, and then get employment, stay credentialed at a hospital, etc. If you're a patient or someone who's not a physician, you're going to find this very interesting because this is a reason why lots of physicians are leaving. And especially when you see the level of, I guess I won't say corruption, but certainly funny business or impropriety in funding. I think you'll see that there's some serious problems with these organizations and how they conduct their business. And since they are a private organization, they are not bound by the same rules that you'd have in a public sector as far as transparency. However, they're also not really private, right? They are also public. They're oftentimes 501c3s or nonprofit organizations, and they have to conduct their business in a manner that is not profitable, but the money gets funneled somewhere. And so they provide lavish benefits. They have questionable expenditures and investments. They also create foundations that there seems to be no point to it except a way to sort of hide the money and put it somewhere else so they can pull out later or then use for their executives. Anyway, it's one of the reasons that physicians got really upset, especially when the ABIM story first hit. Charles was instrumental in helping the New York Times and Time Magazine get that out. And that just exposed these crazy things that the Internal Medicine Board was doing. Well, this sort of practice exists in all these boards. I talked a few episodes ago to Dr. Matthew from the National Board of Physicians and Surgeons with an optional a different sort of choice for credentialing and maintaining your certification with your uh, specialty. And now you see why what he's doing is so important because you have these organizations that really have no check. They're a monopoly. They're not a monopoly in the sense that it's illegal to oper- run another credentialing service, but they are essentially pretty much the only show in town. They're the only one that can really operate within the framework of medicine and I'll say medicine Inc. And so it makes it really complicated, really tricky to try and have market forces or have accountability that's forced upon these organizations. And so that's where a lot of the frustration sits in these physicians because you don't know where to lash out, right? If you have a problem, 
Well, there's only one place you can go. Well, they don't have to be responsive because there's nowhere else you have an, as an option. You can't go to the federal government. You can't go to the state governments because they will defer to these organizations because they're private. They can't, they don't have any power over them. And so this causes all kinds of frustrations and it causes, without a doubt, people retiring early because they're looking at a 10-year recertification process and they think, yeah, I've got one or two years, forget it, I'm out because I'm not going to go through this pay up for this long process. And so we get people retiring early. We have people who are burnt out, who are spending time spinning the wheels, doing things that are not productive for their practice or their patients. So this all relates to this and the fact that these organizations are now on, I guess you'd say a funnel where they're forced to ever increase the amount of revenue that they generate in order to fund their liabilities. And so for them to even scale back in it all as far as their requirements for physicians, it would be a huge financial loss and something that they may not be able to manage. Anyway, Charles Kroll and Elizabeth Temblay are the ones who look at the financials, figure out where the problems are, where the risks are for these organizations, and why they are behaving sort of the way they are. And this is something that should be exposed, should be talked about, and it should be open. And that's what we're going to do today. If you're a resident or a medical student going to the match, I think this will be very pertinent to you when it comes to these are the organizations that are the initial certification, but also for the certification for your medical schools and residency programs. You can see why you're doing these things, which you're like, why am I doing extra tests that cost a lot of money? And we talked again a little bit ago about the added test for residency certification <laughs> that, that now you have to spend a bunch of money doing something that they pretty much make everyone pass, but it just is an extra expense. It's, these are things that they can just do because there's, again, no alternative. Well, this is the organizations and this is the financials, which may explain why they behave the way they do. So I hope you enjoy the episode. I think you find it interesting. Charles is a really smart guy, and you can follow him, which you can find all those links on the show notes page at theparadox.com slash 164. But without further ado, the medical credentialing boards follow the money. Enjoy. Well, I'm, I'm here with my friends, Charles Kroll and Elizabeth Tremblay. Uh, Charles is a healthcare forensic accountant, and Elizabeth Tremblay is a research analyst. And they specialize now in, I guess, looking at the uh, medical boards, both the the National Board of Medical Examiners, American Board of Medical Specialties, FS, I guess FSMB, all of them, and look at the, the various specialties. And so we're going to talk again. It's been since episode 126 when we had them on. To, we're going to discuss what they found since then. How are you guys doing? Doing well, thank you. Great. Well, why don't you go into, I guess, what, what things have changed since we spoke? Oh, it's been almost eight months now, or maybe nine months since we last spoke. What have you found that's new with the medical boards? Last year when we spoke, we were just dipping our toes into the medical education boards. We had been encouraged for quite a long time to start looking at the medical education boards, which I, Liz and I knew next to nothing about. Uh, obviously, we had heard of some of them. Since we last talked, we started to do not quite a deep dive, but started uh, poking around, compiling data on five or six of the medical education boards, the Association of American Medical Colleges, National Board of Medical Education, FSMB, which was on our radar screen a few years ago when they purchased a mansion. They purchased the former Colombian embassy in, in Washington, D.C. for, they paid over list price. They paid about a half a million dollars over list price. 
and have subsequently put in more money to upgrade. Actually, the neighbors uh, on the block had, had reached out to me in an attempt to, uh, they were not happy that this quiet residential neighborhood would be converted into a business location. I got involved somewhat a few years ago in that effort. They, it actually went to a hearing in Washington, D.C., where the, a lot of restrictions were placed on uh, FSMB to uh, retain the, the residential feel for the neighborhood. So I'm sure they didn't want people to know that they had purchased a mansion, a 25 or 35 bedroom mansion in Washington, D.C., to the tone deafness, to put it politely, of the boards, the way that they're spending their money and the terrible optics of purchasing a mansion in Washington, D.C. I think it's also kind of funny. People would be upset with a that embassy seems sort of like a business too, but I guess maybe it's not. Yeah, the smaller yeah. They, <laughs> but, yeah, they were concerned about the employee count parking, the usual kind sure. of typical commercial real estate concerns. We were quite shocked at the amount of money flowing through, through the medical education boards in dollars that far surpassed the magnitude of the money flowing through the medical specialty boards. So that got our attention. We acquired a fairly large uh, medical student following on Twitter, and they were very upset about information that was being disclosed regarding the various boards and feeling that they were being exploited. You know, every every turn they, you know, every step they took, there was they're being gouged left and right. So that was that was shocking. It takes quite a bit to shock me these days, but I was shocked at the magnitude of money flowing through the medical education boards. I guess it's only right that medical students just start feeling the gouging from the medical uh, board and testing examination fee before they even become doctors. So they get, get them uh, nice and uh, acclimated to how it's going to be when they're out in their career. Uh, <laughs> So I guess it's a little bit of background because we kind of just launched into things. I realized, you know, when we're talking about the medical boards, uh, there are specialty boards, uh, 25 specialty boards that are of the various medical specialties. They are under the ABMS, which is a medical foundation. Sorry, not a foundation. Uh, uh, they have a, their own foundation as well. But they have, that's a governing board for the, that sets the rules for the, for accreditation for all the different residency programs. And then there are all these other alphabet soup sort of organizations, right? There's the NBME, which is the National Board of um, Medical Examinations for all the testing, like USMLE, I think, right? Yeah. And probably the foreign medical uh, boards as yes. well. Uh, so all these testing things, there's um, AAMSC, which is American Association of Medical Colleges, right? There's Educational Committee for Foreign Medical Grads, the uh, federal state medical boards. There's all these alphabet soup or agencies that are private. And so they aren't, they, they are, but they're uh, nonprofits, right? So they have to, they have to submit uh, financial supports reports, which is what you report on, right? You look at their 990s, is that the I think, yeah. term? And then you look at them and you say, okay, this is where their financial situation is. And so we have to, for the most part as physicians, participate with these organizations because for credentialing reasons and for licensing reasons, you have to, if not spending, sending money directly to them, you're sending money to one of the boards that report to them or they're somehow associated and it all kind of <laughs> works together. We talked to Dr. Matthew a couple episodes ago about this alphabet soup of credentialing. And so we're, and this is kind of the other half or maybe even the seedier side of things in the sense that we're talking about the actual money that goes into it. So I guess that's maybe a little bit of background. And so that for those who are in medicine, you this is all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes when you send money, a check to your medical specialty. 
but also for those who have no idea what we're talking about, this is what it is. These are the credentialing bodies, and they're, I guess, private nonprofit bureaucrats. I don't really know how to describe these people, but um, they're the ones who run these things. And they have all the usual things, right? They have retirement funds. They have salaries. They have all the different expenses and stuff that goes into things. And so apparently one of them decided to buy a mansion in D.C., right, to, for their operations. And so that's, I guess, the background. Um, aside from the, the egregious purchase of a former embassy, what other things are they doing and uh, what, where the money is going? All the information that we have compiled, I jumped into the story in 2014, New York Times got involved, the Wall Street Journal, Newsweek. Newsweek eventually ran a four-part series written by Kurt Eichenwald regarding the American Board of Internal Medicine. But all the information that we have compiled and continue to compile is public information. It's either the 990 forms, which is the effectively the annual tax return. The term tax return is a little bit uh, misleading. Uh, most of them do not pay any income tax per se. They're nonprofits. A few, a handful of them have some activity that is considered taxable, but it's immaterial to the big picture. What concerned us and what got the attention of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times with the New York, the Elizabeth Rosenthal was a reporter with the New York Times. She subsequently featured my work on the American Board of Internal Medicine in a book that was published in 2017 called An American Sickness. And she dedicated one chapter to the American Board of Internal Medicine. They're dabbling in real estate. They purchased a luxury condominium blocks from their office. And is once that information was disclosed, they somehow kept it secret for about seven years, although it was hiding in plain sight on their tax returns. But I'm sure they banked on nobody looking at their their 990s. And even if they were looking at the 990s, not connecting the dots or not understanding, you know, what's really going on. The condominium that ABIM purchase was one of the stories featured in the book. Elizabeth Rosenthal is, a, I believe, an internal medicine doctor and was licensed board certified. It was quite shocking to her to discover that these organizations, which she had a lot of respect for, were disregarding the interests of the physicians. And others, of course, obviously communicated with us via Twitter, their shock and disgust, if you will, of what they were seeing. Liz and I joined forces in 2018. We compiled a study of all 25 spe medical specialty boards and did a very comprehensive study. It's over 50 40-page report of the various components of the boards money coming in, compensation going out, retirement plan, money going out, real estate acquisitions, either through the board or the American Board of Family Medicine. I'm sure you have members in your audience that are hanging, sitting on the seat of their chair, waiting to hear any salacious stories about the American Board of Family Medicine. But uh, there are some things going on with ABFM that is concerning to me and speaking only as layperson, obviously having relationships with family medicine docs over the years uh, are shoveling tens of millions of dollars out the back door to a foundation. And this was disturbing to me that 
money was being offloaded off the board. So effectively cash is being taken off the books of the board, which is very convenient if the, you know, if someone has questionable intentions, you know, what is the purpose of setting up a foundation for a nonprofit organization? So a number of the boards are dabbling in real estate. The American Board of Internal Medicine, through their foundation, made fairly substantial investment through a, a private partnership to the Cayman Islands. Uh, excuse me. And the Cayman Islands uh, investments, you know, which is very risky, might be a violation of Pennsylvania nonprofit law. There are certain fiduciary responsibilities that nonprofits have in their investments. To me, I think to 99 out of 100 people, you stop, ask on the street today if a Cayman Island investment is considered a prudent investment. That story was very upsetting to the physicians on top of the condo and all these other things that we've been finding. Right. So there's, you know, we, we've discovered a pattern of, you know, questionable, not necessarily illegal. I'm not, don't mean to suggest that I'm not an attorney. I'm not a tax attorney. I, you know, I can't speak to the legality of the things that have been done, but, uh, you know, it's just very upsetting. The optics are God awful in light of everything and the rollout of the new uh, maintenance of certification program in 2014. You know, it certainly has reeks of financial chicanery, maybe is the best word to use uh, at the board. So we started looking at the medical education boards. We haven't done a deep dive on them. We have looked at some numbers at some of the boards, revenue, billion, $2, a billion, $2 billion over 10 year period coming into a number of the boards. So there's a lot of money sloshing around and creates, I think the term is moral hazard for those that feel that they might be able to do things, you know, if they're not being watched, or if there's not someone paying attention of making reckless financial decisions, which, you know, for for-profit, I, I wouldn't be concerned about that. But they, I think there's a higher duty at these nonprofits to maintain some appearance of financial uh, management propriety. Right. So when we're looking at this, we're talking about the spe specific medical boards and it they're nonprofit, so their revenue is limited to what they get in fees, I guess we'd say. Right? So this is me sending my money, and if I'm a family medicine physician, I send my money to the board to maintain my certification. They keep track of it. They send it to hospitals. I mean, we know that they sell this data to many, many entities for various reasons. Um, so that's, you know, one revenue stream for them as well. But so they have, they get that, that's their only revenue source for the most part, obviously they have other ways they're trying to make, they have probably some investments and things like that for where their cash is sitting on the side that they have most organizations do uh, in the market or wherever. Uh, and then you have, as far as their payouts, they're paying their employee salaries and they're paying retirement, right? And so right. our concern, of course, is that they, maybe they got to a point where they're, well, I guess the there's also the foundations, but if it comes to the, the your actual, their payout to retirement, can they cover retirement benefits? Are their retirement benefits too rich, right? And if not, are they going to have to have, you know, raise fees? Are they going to have to find some other way, alternative revenue source? And secondly, the talk about the foundations, it's interesting because these are nonprofit organizations. So you think in many ways, they don't need a foundation to do their work, which is nonprofit work anyway. So, so your concern is, Ed, with the foundations is that it is a potential source of, I guess, chicanery, we'll say, where they can send money to this foundation and it kind of just disappears there, right? It can be used for 
various methods, maybe riskier uh, investments in order to try and make up some revenue losses that they have in the main organization, right? Is, is Are those sort of the two points that you're making? Yeah, you know, the boards, particularly, I think in 1989, 1990, when they rolled out the time-limited certification, they basically doubled and tripled their income flows. Sure. Look at the number of doctors and so on entering. And I think, you know, again, it's privy to internal documents. I don't know what the intentions are only implied from a trend in the numbers that we're seeing. But a number of the boards, the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology is making about $10 million a year consistently tax-free, free and clear after all compensation, after all overhead, they're making an obscene amount of money. And to me, again, speaking as a layperson, that looks awfully like a for-profit organization, a testing organization that which in ABPN's case, they just built the Taj Mahal, a new headquarters in Deerfield, Illinois, outside of Chicago, they've sunk between 22 and 25 million into this beautiful building on a pond out back. And it, you, you start to question, okay, what is their purpose here? And is the nonprofit protection that's provided to them just a ruse to gouge the physicians and channel all this excess cash that they're swimming in? into these, you know, office complexes, buildings built from scratch, offloading tens of millions to foundations where the cash is now off the books of the board. And then they can, I think maybe they can feel they could do whatever they want on the foundation side. So yeah, it's just a lot of troubling, uh, disturbing things that we have uncovered. I was going to say, you, you know, my background is not in healthcare, but it's primarily in genealogy and research. And I do look at the details of everything. I'm looking through the details of the numbers in these studies that we've done. As far as retirement, my retirement plan is my children. And so I, I was shocked on an emotional level at the astounding sums I saw in these retirement funds. Speaking as a physician, when it you're sending your money in, you expect that, I mean, for the most part, it's a nonprofit. So you expect that what you're paying in is what is basically required in operations for maintaining the testing, maintaining whatever infrastructure it is that, you know, that pay the people to look at the tests and to, and to make sure you're fulfilling all the the various components that you required for the certification. We can disagree with what the requirements are for those things. And I think there are a lot of physicians who have a lot of problems with maintenance certification, like I talked about with Dr. Matthew. But it's it would be very surprising that there, the amount that you're spending in is in well in excess of what they require for operations, right? You wouldn't expect that for the nonprofit organization. You would expect that if they say it takes $1,000 to make to maintain your certification each year, that you would send in $1,000 or you know whatever. You wouldn't send in $2,000. It seems strange that, that you'd have to do that. And that's that seems to be the impression you're giving. And then I think a very reasonable response from them, if they have all this cash, is that we got to do something with it, whether it's moving right. to off the books to mm-hmm. you know somewhere else or to buy some real estate so that we have assets that we can later sell if we need to in the future. But I know that when physicians look at the salaries for people who serve on these boards as, well, I won't say volunteers, they're not volunteered, but uh, they're generally academics and they're making 
well in excess oftentimes of what the physicians make in private practice. I mean, we're seeing uh, the president of the pediatrics board and the um, uh, family medicine and internal medicine making seven figures, which no one makes in regular practice anywhere close to that. Uh, and so I think that's that has definitely led to initial, a lot of the initial angst from physicians. And then the, all the other things like buying condominiums and buying offshore accounts and those sorts of things certainly got people very upset. Um, why don't you go into just a couple numbers, like to give us an idea of the magnitude of what it is that, that you're looking at. Like, um, I, I know uh, all you go through this stuff with the National Board of Medical Examiners, which I think is pretty much in charge at USMLE. These are the guys who the medical students are paying money to, right? They're the ones who, in addition to other people like residents. Right. I'm, um, again, we're not, we're new to the medical education boards other than really extremely high level understanding, you know, the, you know, what role these boards play at certain steps, uh, students' education process, you know, including the tests and the math, which is coming up. You know, I'm, I'm certainly not well informed about those issues, but we wanted to talk a little bit about retirement plans at the medical education boards and compare the numbers at the medical education boards to the numbers at the medical specialty boards. And our findings were very shocking that the medical education boards, one or two of the boards that we looked at, their assets in their retirement plans for the one organization, certainly for the National Board of Medical Examiners, exceeds all 25 of the medical specialty boards retirement plans the reaction i get from medical students on that issue is oh great here's you know medical students effectively but you know directly or indirectly funding these organizations their retirement plan for example at the national board of medical examiners is worth more 150 million dollars more than all 25 of the retirement plans of the boards for working physicians. So it feeds into this narrative of just mass exploitation of medical students. And they're very, very upset with the information that was being disseminated last summer and last fall when we started to drill down a little bit into these individual boards. I'd like to walk through some of the numbers, medical education boards, uh, and we're looking at 2019 data, which is uh, from what's called the Form 5500. It's, it's a requirement for all companies with retirement plans, profit and nonprofit, to file with the Department of Labor. So all of the information that we acquired is public information. Uh, but very few people have paid attention to, okay, what's going on with the retirement plans? And we thought this, this was an issue that needs to be brought to the forefront in the conversation about the abuse or perceived abuse of dollars at the boards. The medical education board's assets were close to $600 million. Uh, at the end of 2019. Keep in mind, the stock market is up over 40% since 2019. So I think it's safe to say you can comfortably add 30 to 40% to the numbers that I'm about to disclose. So 
the, Amer the Association of American Medical Colleges, their retirement plan was formed in 1952. Uh, they were early into the game. Their retirement plan is worth a quarter of a million. The Education Commission for Foreign Medical Graduates, 76 million. Their uh, retirement plan was formed in 1965. Federation of State Medical Boards, they're coming in at about 28 million. National Board of Medical Examiners, they're at 225 million at the end of 2019. They're closing in on 300 million at the end of 2020. And then the National Resident Match Program is leading, uh, is it, coming in last place at 4.6 million uh, retirement plans, which for some reason sounds disappointing to me and maybe disappointing to them when they see it. <laughs> I thought they all go to the same country club, you know, and have talk among themselves and know what the other is doing. Did you have any questions concerning? Well, I think, it, yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the overarching question, I suppose, is with that it, it's easy for us to throw on millions, billions, all these numbers, right? Yes. And at some point, they kind of lose their they lose yes, their meaning. They and do. You're like, well, if this is a really big organization with right. twenty thousand employees, uh, ten million dollars is not much, right? Or if right. It's, Correct. If it's three employees, ten million is a ton, right? So, uh, what is the? I guess what's the the takeaway from the fact that U.S. Uh, let's say MBME is two hundred. It's like two hundred fifty million dollars. Do they have not enough? Do they have too much? I mean, what what is the thing that we should be concerned about? Yeah, I mean, these med students who have no choice, you know, they're, they'll pay whatever it costs to take these tests because you know, you're already in the hole for about a quarter million dollars in debt, right. debt anyway, was another thousand dollars. And so the boards can right. charge whatever they want. Right. And so are they charging an appropriate amount? That's what the med students want to know. And that's what people, new physicians want to know. Probably in terms of what they were doing and the way, again, being an outsider, looking at public financial information, just left a very bad taste in my mouth. And you say, well, okay, yeah, they're a large organization. They have, you know, there's nothing illegal about setting up retirement plans. But uh, National Board of Medical uh, Education is unique in that old-fashioned government-style pension plan, which I personally having come out of the public accounting world, have not seen at a for-profit company in at least 35 to 40 years. These are mm -hmm. old-fashioned plans where once someone retires, their benefits are guaranteed for life. The other, you say, okay, that sounds, yeah, I get that. What? How, how is that different than other plans? Other plans can be what they call a defined benefit uh, I'm sorry, defined contribution where employees say, yeah, I'll kick in 2%, 3%. You guys match it, whatever, you know, that, okay, you get, basically you get what you get when you retire and good luck managing your money. That's basically most for-profit companies are more 401k, which would be a defined contribution type plan. It's, you know, it's has the employee able to, donate to the retirement plan and have it matched by his employer. So it's a very positive employee benefit for a lot of people. National Board of Medical Education, they set up their plan 75 years ago. Truman was president. And it's a very old-fashioned defined benefit pension plan where benefits are guaranteed for life upon retirement. So you say, yeah, okay, that seems maybe generous, maybe not in sync with what other companies are doing in the for-profit world. 
The problem with MBME is that about five years ago, the value of their plan started to exceed the value of the board itself. And, you know, I have a problem with that. Uh, just again, looking as an, uh, as an outsider, it, it seems that there's something not right with this picture when a nonprofit's retirement plan is worth more that was formed in 1946 is worth more than the organization itself that funded the plan that was formed in 1915. And I know Liz knows who the president was in 1915. I don't know if that was Wilson or not, but um, so we're, we're going back a long time. So you say, okay, yeah, that doesn't add up. The problem is, is that this pension plan long threatens the long-term viability of National Board of Medical Education. What's happening is that the they have a fairly old the demographics, which is all public information through the Department of Labor. A large portion, percentage of their employees are over the age of 50, perhaps 55. And with a defined benefit plan, the closer one becomes to retirement age, the more money, in other words, the money has to be there and funded when the, these people retire. So as these baby boomers are closing in on retirement age, the, it puts tremendous pressure on the organization to make sure that the pension plan is funded. I'm not suggesting that they're 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 underfunding, but uh, I wanted to walk through some numbers that were disturbing to me regarding MBME. As I mentioned the retirement plan is worth more than the board itself, and the plans at the end of 2020 of around 300 billion million. So they have 300 billion in cash and investments in the retirement plan, but the board itself is now worth about 150 million. So the retirement funds are worth wow. twice the board. So we say, okay, that's paints an ugly picture. Here's the catch. They, every year they're required to hire an actuary insurance, you know, act, you know, with uh, thinking, okay, this person at this age will live to this, you know, X number of years after retirement, how much money is on day one of retirement, how much money needs to be available to fund lifelong uh, benefits during retirement. And of course, the life expectancy has increased quite a bit, uh, maybe not recently. I know it's leveled off or maybe even dipped down. But since 1946, when this pension plan was established, the life expectancy has increased quite a bit. They bring in a, an actuary saying, okay, uh, how much money do we really need to have in our fund at the end of 2020? So if we were to shut down, close our doors, lock board the windows up, how much money do we need to shell out to fund our all these retirement benefits to our employees? And the actual number that they need to fund is 345 million so uh, it's called the present value of uh, these benefits so you say wait a minute i thought you said they only have 300 million in their account so they're 45 million short they are 45 million dollars short 
ACA is that illegal or something. No, actually, it's all they're complying with Department of Labor funding mechanisms. Uh, they're kicking in bare minimum amounts per year to make sure they stay in compliance with Department of Labor uh, retirement plan funding. So bottom line with the National Board of Medical Examiners is that if I was an outsider, if I was asked to advise the board, if I was sitting on the board, the first thing on the, the agenda would be you have to kill this plan. You must be done with this plan. And otherwise, it's putting the long-term viability of MBME at risk. Unless, and here's the catch that the medical students have said, they're saying, hey, they're just going to jack our fees up so they can pay for the retirement of all these baby boomers. So it's not, you know, the narrative is not a good one for them. And it's a public relations disaster for the National Board of Medical Examiners if the medical students knew what was was really going on at the organization and why their fees keep increasing. I guess just in summary, you'd say that it, just like the most, you know, when the first we had these defined benefit plans, people didn't live very long, right? So if right. you said, we're going to start paying out at 65 or whatever, right. just like social security, right? right. We only have a covering somewhere for five to 10 years at most. And, and so we don't have to have that much held back. But now of course people live a lot longer and you have a lot more people, you have a legacy cost. And so we have a, we have a board that's essentially, it's not, I guess technically insolvent, but it sort of is, right? If if everything closes out, it's what you're saying. They don't have enough to cover their fees, and that's assuming the stock market stays at its current pace and all those other sort of things. We can't we can't know with by the future, and and there's only two ways you make up the money, right? You get lucky with your investment somehow, or you find money somewhere else. And so, uh, the solution, of course, is to get rid of these benefit plans um, towards defined defined contribution, where the, you put the risk instead of on the company or corporation or the board or whatever. You put right. the risk on the person who's the employee. And would you say the situation is pretty similar for the other boards too? I mean, on a larger, on a smaller scale, that I mean, the the retirement funds are, that they are also at risk in many ways of of this. That the retirement funds are maybe that that may be the great great risk for them. Uh, the, the, the only other board that's in a somewhat precarious position where the retirement plan is worth twice the value of the board is the American Board of Surgery. I don't know what's going on if, and if there's any surgeons that are familiar with the what's going on at the American Board of Surgery, please contact me through Twitter. Their numbers are bouncing all over the place at the board, but their retirement plan continues to surge. They continue to funnel quite a bit of money into their retirement plan in spite of the wobbly financial condition of the board itself. I wouldn't, just to clarify something that you mentioned in terms of, you know, the NBME in terms of the solvency issue, Yes, I think the pension, this defined benefit plan long-term is a threat to their solvency, is a going concern or continuing their operations. If they were to shut down, the board itself would be rated to cover any shortfall for the retirement plan. I'm sure, you know, under a dramatic scenario, the feds would step in and force the funding retirement plan. So the American Board of Surgery is the one organization that doesn't appear to be very responsible in managing both the board and the retirement plan. You know, I appreciate your work. And as a forensic accountant, which I didn't even know existed until we spoke the first time, that <laughs> that someone who can who looks through the numbers and tries to find out where things are going in, within organizations, 
you can if you're if you have suffered from low blood pressure, I would suggest you follow Charles on Twitter. <laughs> he'll 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 definitely raise it a number of times. Uh, at Charles P. Kroll, which is I think you your title is follow the money. I think that's what it's the, the title on your yeah. Twitter feed, where where you go through and if. If you're a physician uh, interested in what's going on with your specific specialty board, all that information's there in your Twitter feed, whatever specialty is, their revenues and ways to access it. I think wikimock.org is also a place that is, hasn't been updated in a while, though, I think. Correct. Because right. I, I, I would yeah, recommend that anyone interested in updates to this story or new to the story, uh, follow me on Twitter. I, You know, it's... Liz and I keep close track of our Twitter statistics. I've been ranked as high as number eighth in the country in terms of an accounting social media influencer, which is somewhat surprising because I'm competing with Wall Street Journal, got, you know, men and women, Forbes, and so on, you know, with tens of thousands of followers. But yet I continue to rank very high. And I think the reason is, is that I have... Liz and I were astounded at the amount of page views per day that we were getting. Uh, someone, our page, our Twitter profile was being viewed every 60 to 90 seconds, but no one was following us. Now, I don't know what to read into that, but what we read into that is that the med students, practicing physicians, afraid of social media scrutiny by their employer or potential em employer, in the case of medical students, you know, creeping on their social media activity, and they're afraid to follow us, but they do follow us, it, you know, they're, they're tracking yeah. us. And so even though, you know, we might get three to four new followers a week, but we have, you know, a thousand, two thousand, whatever the number is, three thousand profile views in a day, which is just mind boggling. So I think the story is of great interest to a lot of people. But I think there's also, you know, to the extent we can interpret this lack of followers in relation to the number of page views is the fear factor out there, which is sad that, you know, it is that that's the situation. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, most of us recognize that there is a, there is a risk to being, to having a, a trail on social media, right. and whether it's for employment, uh, residency <laughs> positions, getting to medical school, whatever it might be. And so it's a sad state of affairs, but I guess it's the reality of things. Um, right. Well, uh, Charles Cole, Elizabeth Tremblay, thank you so much for being on The Paradox. I uh, hope to have you back again when you <laughs> dig up more stuff, which I'm sure there'll be plenty more. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.